It's so good to uh, worship with you all, and um, man, today you guys sounded extra good. Uh, I was listening in the front, and let's keep singing out loud to the Lord uh, and all that we do, and uh, we're looking forward to next week as Thanksgiving is already upon us, and some of you are ready, some of you aren't. Um, I've seen Christmas lights going up, and um, I'm really upset at those people that did that so early, uh, put the pressure on us. But anyways, uh, next week will be a great time, and this week is a great time to reflect on what you are grateful for, count your blessings, and uh, next Sunday would be a great time to uh, prepare your gratitude in your worship, in your offering, um, in your prayers, and invite a friend. Say, hey, there's a, a huge um, lunch, a big potluck we're having at church. We would love to have you, um, and it's going to be fun next week. So we're looking forward to that. Today we look at this story. Jesus is revealing his greatness to his disciples. And I don't know if you've, I'm sure you have met someone who you thought was very important. Um, someone who was famous or important. And how did you react, right? And what was that like? I remember um, uh, a little while back, I was giving a uh, presentation. I was giving a message at Biola at a conference. And my topic was about love and um, who we ought to love. And um, I was quoting from a man, a scholar, um, named Nicholas Walterstorff. And Nicholas Walterstorff, in his book, Justice, he coined this phrase, the quartet of the vulnerable. And he talks about these four groups. And so I, I quoted him. He is very smart. And um, it was kind of an academic setting. Um, and so I was giving this talk about how the church is going to do this. And um, I had it all ready. And then um, before, right before I go up, the guy in charge, the director, he comes next to me and goes, oh, all right, we're looking forward to it. Hey, it's so cool. You know, Nicholas is here in your session. And I was like, well, who's Nicholas? You know, he's like, Nicholas Walterstorff. And I was like, oh, the guy I was going to quote and say everything from, he's going to be sitting in my ses session. And he's like, yeah, he's, he's right there in the back. White hair, looks really mean. Looks like he's very smart. And so he's there. And so I was like, oh, can you kick him out? No, I didn't say that. But, you know, so you give. And I gave this talk. And. What I had prepared to be authoritative and a lot of exclamation points became very humble and ended with a lot of question marks like, it was four, right? Yeah, and um, we should care for the widows, right? Yeah, we should, right? And, um, you know, how do we react when someone who we think is great is in our midst? And sometimes it's accidental. Sometimes you have prepared to go meet them. Um, but it's, it's pretty special. The disciples here... Um, get to see Jesus in his greatness. The transfiguration happens here. Chapter 9 of Mark, as we have been journeying through this, is this pivotal part of Mark, where they finally are getting the idea of who he is. Up till this point, they're still thinking different thoughts. They're projecting their wishes upon Christ. As many people do today, I wish or I think he's like this or I hope he's like this. But here they get an idea that he's not just a good teacher. He's just not someone who does a few miracles. But he is God himself. He becomes transfigured. And they encounter him there. And I thought it would be um, helpful for us to break this down. And what is revealed here uh, during the transfiguration. We see the glory of Christ. We see the grace of Christ. And thirdly, we see the supremacy of Christ. That he is greater than all. And so we kind of see that, and we're going to 
follow that and go through the story here. First, we see the glory of Christ. He is transfigured. In verse 2, it says this, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. It says he was transfigured. Uh, in the original language, that word, uh, metamorpho, right? We get the word, obviously, metamorphosis from that word. When you think of metamorphosis, it's um, the being itself changing by itself. It's not some outside unit changing it, but to have a metamorphosis, the insect changes itself, right? That's the idea. So in contrast to when Moses' face was shining because he encountered God, that was now a placed upon him. He was a mere reflection of the glory of God. Here, Jesus Christ, it, the glory is from within. He is changed within. He changes himself. He is not reflecting someone else's glory. He himself is full of glory. And he now shows his true colors, if we could say, to the disciples. It's Mark, you can imagine, in his first century vocabulary and experience, tries to describe what that did to him, what he looked like. Verse 3, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I mean, this is the best way he could describe it. There were no lights or neon things, or there wasn't anything like that. He was trying to describe it in his words. And back in those days, you would imagine that people didn't wear white um, you don't want to wear white because it's going to get soiled quickly. It's hard to clean and it's hard to bleach. And so you would try to wear some neutral colors that wouldn't show the stains or the dirt or what you ate for lunch on the front or the dirt from when you're walking around on the roads. And so for his clothes to look white, not just a regular white, but he says intensely white, for his clothes to be like that, that no one could even bleach it like this. Um, he is trying to describe what happens here. He is transfigured, right? Um, they didn't know up till this point. They didn't fully realize who was in the midst, who was in the boat with them, who was there feeding the masses. They didn't fully grasp all this. And now they get this. Uh, there was a, a news article of a high school gal, um, Jordan Dickerson. Jordan Dickerson lived in the D.C. area. And something peculiar happened to her. She was a track, she was on the track team, 17 years old. And she goes to the track meet, um, and there's other schools there, obviously, in the D.C. area. And her teammates say, oh, my gosh, at the other school there, um, at the Friendship Collegiate Academy, the, the other school, there's a gal that looks just like you. And they were teasing her about it. Like, she looks just like you. Um, and you you've probably all had that done, right, where someone says, you look like someone, and you see them, and you're really disappointed. They're like, really? Come on, right? And they're like, look, look at my friend. You know, he looks just like you. No, he doesn't, you know? Uh, in your mind, you're like, I'm way better looking than that guy. Um, but this happens. So anyways, she goes, and she's spying on her, and she says, looks just like her. Looks just like her. Um, so then the next track, she goes, and she just wants to go see her again, and she sees her, and boy, it just reminds her of herself. 
Eventually, she goes up and she approaches the other gal and she says, what's your name? You know, my friends have been saying we look alike. I wanted to say hi. And when she hears the other girl say her name, she is in shock. She says, my name is Robin Jeter. You see, this girl, Jordan Dickerson, was adopted at birth. And the adopted, adopting mom had told her that, yeah, your birth mom's last name was Jeter. And she had come to realize this was her sister. This was her biological sister. And they both come to that conclusion. They were nine months apart, but they looked like twins. Um, they get together and they realize, boy, they have the same appetite. They like to eat the same kind of foods. They run the same events, even on the track meet. Uh, similar, very similar personalities. Even their shoe size was the same. They didn't realize for 17 years that this girl didn't realize that her sister lived in the same city for 17 years. If she hadn't ran track, she would have never known. It, I think about the disciples at this point, and maybe their eyes have just been opened up again. You know, the knowledge of Christ has just gotten to another level. He is real. He is glowing. His shirt is like a, a bleach I can't describe. It's, it's an intense white. I can't even look at him. His face is glowing. The other gospels tell us he is not only just a prophet or a priest or a rabbi, he is God himself. He is the creator of all things. And they grasp that, I believe here. That he was in their midst the whole time. So they see the glory of Christ. The second part we see is the grace of Christ. You know, when we think of the word grace, you think of forgiving. You think of someone who is generous, someone who is kind, loving, gentle. They see and experience all of that there. How we get to that is the people who are around him. Now, first of all, when you see that, it's verse 4. There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So you say, wow, this is pretty special. This is the meeting of the minds. This is the hall of fame of faith in the Old Testament. They're all together. And you say, wow, isn't this special? And uh, Peter, in his panicking mode, says, I will build three tents. And it says something kind of foolish he says here. It's interesting because Mark is supposed to be close with Peter. Uh, Mark makes sure we understand that Peter is not saying this out of some theological depth. He just was terrified, didn't know what to do. He was just in a panic mode. He's almost poking fun at him, right? So you can imagine Peter sees Jesus, and then Moses and Elijah appears, and it says in verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here let us make uh, three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Right? Mark puts that in. He didn't know what he was saying. Him, James, and John were just terrified. James and John are like some of us, when we are in shock or afraid, we just shut down. Peter, on the other hand, are like some of us, we freak out, Right? There's an earthquake. There's always the guy running in circles in the same room. There's the other people that are just still. There's a car accident. There's a guy running around versus the other people that are just still. We see his personality coming out again. So they're having this discussion. Moses, and just a little side note, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And all throughout the Bible, it keeps telling us, the Bible keeps telling us that the law and the prophets are pointing to Jesus Christ. 
The law is not a separate thing of itself, and the prophets didn't have a different message. They're all pointing to the gospel. They're all pointing to Christ. It's interesting, you know, in Luke chapter um, uh, 24, uh, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus after he is resurrected, and he's talking to those disciples there in verse 27, and he's explaining, and he's teaching them. And it says, from uh, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he's, he goes back to the writings of Moses. He goes back to all the prophets, and he's saying they all point to him, and their eyes get open, right? And so this is kind of this culmination of that. The law and the prophets are there, um, and so we see this happening. Uh, Luke's gospel tells us about this story, the same thing, but it tells us something interesting. Verse 30 of Luke 9, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to accomplish, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Something that is to come. So they're talking about his departure, you know, his death. He's going to leave. The word departure is the word exodus, in the original language. So you see this connection there. You can imagine Jesus is explaining to Moses, you remember the exodus. Remember you wandered for 40 years, you were so afraid, and you remember you never made the promised land, the people, you couldn't lead them, and I am here to ultimately lead them on this exodus, out of their sin and bondage, into the promised land of heaven. And I fulfill what you can. So there is this whole discussion happening. But now, coming back, how is this a picture of grace? When you look at Moses, when you look at Elijah, they weren't perfect. They weren't the strongest or the best or the holiest people. Moses, when he's first called, gives excuse after excuse. And, um, you know, in Exodus 4, he basically says, verse 13, Oh, my Lord, please just send someone else. God's saying, I want you to go and speak on my behalf. Just send someone else. And it says, verse 14, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, right? Elijah, the same thing. After he has an interaction with Jezebel, he freaks out. He fears that woman more than he fears God. And he tells God in 1 Kings 19.4, It is enough, O Lord, take away my life. He's saying, just kill me now, because I don't want her to kill me. And so we have this picture of these two guys who are flawed, who are cowards, um, who weren't perfect. But somehow, as they're sitting there, it's a picture of God's grace. You have a, Peter is there, butting in still, calling the Lord still a rabbi and saying, I'm going to build a tent and saying all these things. It is a picture of Jesus' grace towards him. James and John, their lives are changed by Jesus. Think about this. It's a picture of his grace that they are able, the past, the present, and us, the future, are able to sit at his feet together. You know, you think about heaven. Um, you think about who you would like to meet. Um, I'm sure we all have questions. Whether it's for Noah or it's for Moses, um, you know, or Elijah. How did that fire, how did you send the fire down? How did that work? Peter, what was it like to walk on the water and then, you know, fall in? James and John, why did they call you the sons of thunder? Are you really that strong? And whatever it is. And, and they would all point to the one who saved them. And it's a picture of this grace that we see here. 
there's a man uh, named Nicholas uh, Winton. Nicholas Winton is known as the British. Um, he was a British man who had saved so many Jewish kids from Czechoslovakia. Um, and he's known as the British Oscar Schindler, you know, by some. Um, so he goes to Czechoslovakia as the uh, Nazis were invading. And as a Christian man, he goes there and he starts rescuing these Jewish children. Total, he saved 669 children. So parents were literally handing off their kids, please take my kid, please take my kid. And he would take them and he would raise money and he would find homes in all throughout Britain and he would try to get them to the U.S. And uh, he spent a lot of time and energy secretly paying off some of these uh, Nazi soldiers so he can get them through. Um, so he does a great work. Fifty years after he had done, uh, after the war and after he had done so much, his wife, and it's interesting, she didn't know that he had done this. He had never talked about this. The only way she found out is one day in the attic, she finds this scrapbook. And in this scrapbook, she opens it up, and it's filled with forms and a list of names and where they're going and their age and birthdays and so on. And she looks at it, and she asks him, what is all this? And then it is at that point, 50 years later, that he tells her what he did. So I helped save all those kids really maybe out of his humility that he doesn't talk about this. And so she sends this now to uh, his historians and they validate everything. They find all these people and they know they're all there and what he had done and they, it was all, um, you know, uh, found to be true and there was a total of 669 Jewish children. Uh, in 1988, they did a special show on him at the, on the BBC show called That's Life and they brought out that scrapbook and they're talking about it. Look at the forms they filled out and these are the people, these are the names and here is the man and they had him sitting in the front um, and they had him sitting there and they, uh, you know, Mr. Winton here is already uh, late in his age and they say, we have a special guest for you and he's sitting in the crowd, he doesn't know that there's about two dozen people or so sitting right around and next to him who are all children whose names are in that book. So they stand up and give him a ovation. And this is, you could find this on YouTube, on online. But there's this moment, right? And they're applauding him. He had saved their lives. There's a, a woman that, obviously she was a little girl when she was saved, and she's next to him and saying, you saved my life. You saved the next generation. You saved not just 669, but thousands upon thousands. And they're sitting around. It's a very emotional scene, a very special scene that you see. I think about this. One day all of us believers will be in heaven. And we will be sitting with now Moses and Elijah and Peter and Esther and Mary and uh, everyone else in the Bible. And it will be a picture of us sitting around the throne where Jesus Christ is saying, he's the one that saved me. He's the one who guided me. You know, and, and Daniel will be talking about his experience. And Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego will be talking about him walking with them through the fires. And we will be sitting there, and it will be a place of God's grace that we see. And I think the awe of Moses and the awe of Elijah coming back, it now gets put in perspective as they realize, thirdly, that Jesus is greater. The supremacy of Christ is seen here. 
How is that done? It's done because you hear all of a sudden the Father's voice come in. As Peter is thinking they're all on equal level ground, the Father speaks and says, let's put it in perspective. Um, he is my son, right? And it tells us here in verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so this is all changed. He's saying, he's not one of many. He's not one of many religions. He's not, you can't sit and compare and contrast. No, just him. Just Jesus is the son of God. Not anyone else. And he tells him to listen to him. You know, uh, the book of Hebrews is a whole book filled with comparisons and contrasts. That, Jesus, that the new covenant is better than the old, the uh, you know, Jesus is greater than the prophets of old. Jesus is greater than the priests of old. And it's, it's kind of speaking of him as the fulfillment and he is greater than. And in Hebrews 3, 3, it says this. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. He's saying... Well, Moses is great. He did a lot of things. But Jesus built Moses. Jesus made Moses. You don't go and be so caught up in the house. It's the architect that matters. He's the one who put it all together. She's the one that designed this whole place. And so you're saying you're focusing so much on the house, but think of the architect, Jesus Christ, who did these things. This is my son. Listen to him. You know, the word listen there, um, when I first read it, I thought, oh, it means for us to obey him. I mean, obviously, if he tells us to do so, but it doesn't even have that. It just has the idea of listening, you know, of just taking it in. I read an article that said that most people think they are funnier than they really are, right? Most of us are like that. We think we're funny and then tell the story and it wasn't that funny. And most of us think we are better listeners than we really are. All of us think we're pretty good listeners, but we're not, right? And especially, I think, with God, um, we are worse listeners than we think we are. We're, a lot of us are better talkers or we project things on him, but just to listen to him. He is worthy to be heard in this way. You know, I remember... Um, I was starting seminary back in 94, and they had a, a welcome dinner for the students. And I was pretty excited. Didn't know what seminary was going to be like. Um, and I remember going to the welcome dinner, and they had all these tables set up out in the lawn, and they had um, name tags, and you get to sit with random people, meet them, and, and then they had a little presentation. So at my table, um, eating, and the guy next to me, his name was Dennis um, he was kind of an older guy, and he was asking me about me. Like, oh, Steve, you know, what brings you to Talbot? And tell me. So I'm just telling him. And I'm thinking he's really into me. You know, he wants to hear about me, and I want to tell him. And in the back of my mind, I remember distinctly thinking, gosh, he's, he's kind of old. He's starting late in ministry, you know. He looked kind of like he was 60 or something already. I was like, oh. And I, I didn't think much of it. And then as we're... As I'm talking, the presider interrupts. Everyone's, all right, sorry to interrupt, but at this time, we're going to have the dean of Talbot come up and say a few words. His name is Dr. Dennis Dirks. And then he goes, oh, I'll be right back. And then he gets up, and he goes up to the front. And then so I'm like, oh, my gosh, that was a dean. That is not just 
Dennis, the old guy, that's Dr. Dennis Dirks. He's the boss of all these guys. Probably means he's smarter than all these guys. Um, and then he gives a little welcome talk and a little message, and he comes back to his seat next to me. And I'm like, what are you? You know, I, you know, I just were like, well, how come you didn't tell me you were so important? And um, I'm like, tell me about you. I just need to hear from you. I, you don't need to hear from me. And, you know, we approach Christ and today, I want us to just have a big vision of Christ as we have been doing the last several weeks. He is the, the one who is transformed in this way. He is full of glory, full of grace. And he is superior to anyone and anything. And we listen to him. We get to know him. Someone once said, and I saw this quote, and said that big egos have little ears. Big egos have little ears. I hope we approach Christ with small and no egos and big ears and we hear him. And daily we reflect on who he is. And may that change us. In all the little mundane things we do in life, as we get ready for another Thanksgiving, another weekend, another Christmas, and boy, it just seems like it's not that big of a deal, would you fix your eyes on him who is? The one who saved us. Be in awe of him. He deserves for us to listen to him so we hear him. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, uh, for sharing with us uh, your son, Jesus Christ, full of grace, full of glory, a picture of what is to come, God, we see, that we can go in glory and be in your presence with Moses and Elijah, Peter, James, and John. And we will all be speaking about you. So God, we are humbled uh, before you. We are in awe before you and it changes everything again. We come back here today uh, to be reminded of that. Some of us, we, we needed to be reminded that you are glorious and you are greater. You're greater than our bosses are greater than um, our problems. They're greater. Uh, so God, we submit and listen to you today. Uh, would you be glorified in our lives? May we reflect some of your glory off of us, God. Help us to live in this kind of faith. We thank you uh, for this. We pray in Jesus' name.